Hey, thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Business of Fun podcast. This is the first one of 2022, and let me be probably the last person to wish you Happy New Year, since this is the first time you're hearing from me, because 2022 has started out uh, with me catching COVID, with the whole family catching COVID, Uh, so be careful out there. Mild is doing a lot of weight carrying in that mild variant. Um analogy because it's uh you know i have been on the shelf for 14 or 15 days now it's been a mess um but let's move beyond that this week i am dropping a special episode with my good conference buddy uh lindsey jackson from the edinburgh fringe festival uh so if you're gonna be at intix check out simon kath and Haley. Uh, at the Booking Protect booth. They will be there all week long. I uh, get my Talking Tickets newsletter. That's talkingtickets.substack.com. Uh, it's great. Um, I get people from all over the world reading the thing, telling me how awesome it is. Um, people find great value from it. Go ahead and get that. Uh, I am looking for some feedback from you because I am working on putting together the very first Podference for the world of tickets. And I'm kind of curious what would be valuable for you to learn. You know, so send me an email. It's daviddavewakeman.com and let me know uh, what kind of guests or what kind of information, what kind of thinking you need uh, to help you and your organization recover in 2022. So it's com because I'm still uh, keeping it a little bit like tight in the chest a little bit like scratchy from the the, the vid uh, i'm gonna make this announcement short so uh lindsey jackson she's with the edinburgh fringe festival and she is awesome uh so i was super excited that she actually agreed to put up with my um ridiculousness for the better part of an hour uh we hit on some really fun stuff with our quick fire questions uh which i've actually found a are very valuable for learning the person. They set a really good stage. Uh, but we talked about the Fringe Festival and managing a process of accelerated change. We understood, um, you know, how to understand, uh, how to explain value to people differently. Uh, how do you adapt to a pandemic? You know, what do you do if you have to do a hybrid event versus an entirely virtual event? We talked about the value in pricing around virtual events or hybrid events. We talked about, um, you know, managing such a large festival because they sell about 3 million tickets a year. Um, We talked about the way that she manages her team and the room that they get to be able to be creative and come up with solutions. We talked about planning. We talked about um, digital versus in person. We talked about um, Selfridges versus Fortnum and Mason. We talked about managing a balance sheet. Uh, We talked about resistance and change and innovation and and some case studies and sustainability and balance and really just a whole lot of really great stuff. Uh, Lindsay's going to be doing a presentation virtually at Intex this week. Um, This episode's really, really great. Um, I'm grateful for her to doing this and I would usually be a lot more effusive except for like I can already feel my voice running out of gas. So here's my conversation with Lindsay Jackson on The Business Fun. just waiting to see there should be a sign that'll tell me oh there we go we're recording see 
I have still not figured any of this stuff out, but I want to welcome uh, really uh, we've had like a half hour conversation already. So and I was thinking this is always like the way it goes. It's like we've already like laughed and joked for like 20 minutes or so before we even start the conversation. Then I go, oh, I want to welcome Lindsay Jackson from the Edinburgh Fringe Festival to the Business of Fun. Not like we haven't just talked for like a half hour, but what's happening, Lindsay? Uh, December is happening. Christmas is coming and Edinburgh is dark, but but, you know, still pretty. Yeah, well, and I, I, I like this because usually it's my job to virtue signal with the bookshelf full of books behind. <laughs> uh, but now we have dueling virtue signals. It's it's awesome. So, uh, yeah, thank you for doing this. Uh, I think this will be fun. Uh, now I know that I won't get to see you in Florida. It'll be, uh, it'll be a bit big letdown, but that's okay. Uh, we have this time together here to, to chat and make fun of each other. So it'll be great. Um, now, Lately, I have been starting with quick fire questions, and these quick fire questions are obviously very serious, much like me. Uh, so I'm going to start with quick fire questions for you. Um, I dug. You should be. <laughs> I've dug deep to find out, like to 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 the darkest recesses of the internet, to find out questions I can ask ask you to, um, you know, see if I can throw you off. Really, is with the whole thing. But um, so I'm going to start off with like a. Uh, um, a lightweight one, um, because I know that these are two cities that you're you've been attached to over the years, and I want to ask you to pick one which one which child is your favorite, uh, but Manchester or Birmingham? Oh, Birmingham. Really? Birmingham's home. Yeah, Birmingham's Birmingham's you know childhood teenage years and yeah, yeah like I loved Manchester, but Birmingham wins every day. I like Birmingham. I've been there several times. I, I, it, yeah. it, it's, it's a very nice city. Yeah, it's great. And it's having a real renaissance. Um, they, you know, I, I don't know if you know, I'm on the board of the Commonwealth Games that's coming to um, Birmingham in 2022. And it's all part of its sort of cultural and economic renaissance. Like, you know, it's um, it's it's a place that's very familiar and unfamiliar to me because I grew up in it and then left mm -hmm. at 18 and I've never really been back. But yeah, it's fun. It's vibrant. It's got a lot to say. It's one of the youngest uh, cities in Europe. It's Birmingham is where it's at. Yeah. Sorry, Manchester, to let you down. You know, well, I'll, I'll, I would probably pick Birmingham too. So that's yes. and what's the um, what's the place that we we would always go that has the the spinning dance floor, the uh, the nightclub. Oh, you lot on that place is it Flairs? <laughs> yes. I've never been there because I I didn't. It wasn't there when I grew up. The reflex, it's certainly yes, not going, not going as an adult, but it is a, <laughs> it is an institution. Oh man, I have been in there with like, uh, um, I guess almost everybody involved in the yeah. ticketing in Europe. <laughs> yeah, that's the joy of conferences, right? Is you get oh my gosh, yes. and then send them off to get absolutely hammered on a dance floor somewhere. It is um, it, what's what happens in uh, flares slash reflex stays in flares slash reflex. Yes, exactly right. Oh my gosh, that's a, it's a great place. I love it. <laughs> Okay, so let me let me let me let me see if I can get a little bit more. I see. I'm trying. I, I always try to stump people, or I like the the per. Get, I'm looking for the perfect reaction. So I'm, you know, which is like sort of like on. I'm gonna hang up on you now because you're a jerk. <laughs> uh, but not because I've done something mean. But it's because I've like really like nailed it. Um. All right. So uh, this one's more like for me, uh, and I'm hoping that you have the same uh, reaction to this that I would. But it's uh, Selfridges or Fortnum and Mason. You see, you don't like really look like you even have a you care one way or the other. I, I I was struggling a little bit here because I was like the holidays is like I go usually I'm in London I go shopping, you know. I don't know if I've ever shopped in either. 
not i'm not they're, they're not again back to birmingham they're not birmingham institutions you know if you were like marks and spencer's food collection and sainsbury's taste the difference then there'd be an internal struggle but Ooh, yeah. so th- well, let's go there then what's your, what's the what's the oh. struggle tell me oh, they both do good butter they both do good cheese Marks and Spencer's is just a little bit too expensive for anything other than special occasion. Like anybody who who does a regular shop in Marks and Spencer's lives in a, a economic bracket above me for sure. Um, but they do they do do good cheese. They do See, do now, good cheese. Huh? Now mm. I want Marks and Spencer's food. Yeah, no, I was gonna say I, I was like I, I really am a fan of Marks and Spencer's myself, <laughs> but I, I often get an Airbnb so that I can like have my own things when I'm in London too because I spend enough time there. So then I end up going to the regular grocery stores like a normal person. The equivalent for us, well, certainly for this um, Englander, is Whole Foods. Anytime I come to the States, I'm like, gotta go to Whole Foods. Mm-hmm. And I'm all excited by the hot food bar and the salad bar. And, you know, Americans are looking at me like, it's just it's just a food market. Chill out, dude. And I'm like, but it's Whole Foods. Yeah. So, yeah, we're, we're all equally sad about soup. In fact, isn't one of the best things about going to other countries, the supermarkets? In- I, I agree. I absolutely love the I love the supermarkets and I like the bars. But uh-huh. but not but not like the um not like the fancy bars that the hotel concierge will send you to. I want to go to the places where like I'm just wandering around because I just wander around and like look for things and I'm like, well, this looks like a place I'd like to go visit for a second. And then I usually I'll have a like a, a beer or a drink or something. I'll go, well, this either is good or not good, and then I move along with my day. But I always like to see what pe- how people are hanging out and like look at their grocery stores because it's like when Tell I was in Austin. Oh, yeah. In Sydney, I was like endlessly wandering the grocery aisles, like of all the different grocery stores, because I wanted to see what it was like, like to be there. That's absolutely correct, at least for me. Win. Does that mean I win that one? I'm not sure what the point system is here, but apparently I'm quite competitive about the quick fire round. Obviously you are. Um, I'll give you that as a win. Uh, I'll also give you I'll give you the Birmingham one, too. So you're up to nothing. So uh, whatever you I don't know what you'll win. We'll have to discuss that later. Okay. Okay. Question number three. We were talking about the conspiracy theory that the queen is a lizard when before we started this thing. See, now I'm getting the right reaction. See, you, you, see this is what the this is what the free the free talk is about. Is like to get to. <laughs> to, to yes, we were talking so about whether the queen is a lizard. Do continue yes. with your question. So I want you to pick which which prince is your favorite, Harry or William. It's got to be Harry. Really? Oh, wow. Even now, after all of this, like everything that's gone down. Yeah, I feel like he'd be a bit more chill. There's a bit less responsibility on him. But I think, you know, if you were going to be William's wife, then you've got to be the queen one day. And I'm sure that comes with all the equivalent. I'm sure that comes with lots of benefits, but I'm not sure that's the sort of... um, I was going to say I'm not sure that's the sort of scrutiny and public attention that I want. And then I remember this, what Meghan Markle has been subject to. So I don't really want either, but I'll take Harry. He looks like he's a bit more, uh, he looks like he's a bit more fun. He looks like he wants to have a pint more often. Yeah, I would say that actually like probably the best one would be is if they had like a younger brother or sister. And like, so you'd be like, you'd be the third down the line. That would be yeah. the best where it's like going, you get, you get no like all the fun you. stuff, right? You got all the benefits, none of the bad stuff. And you're like sort of just like hanging out like, oh, yeah, I'm Prince me. <laughs> it's like, um, I think it, 
I think it might be Nish Kumar has a whole riff about wanting to be the drummer in Coldplay because apparently Coldplay split all their revenues equally, but no uh-huh. one knows who the drummer in Coldplay is. So he has all the benefits of the money and the status and everything that Coldplay do, but he doesn't have any of the public profile. He's like, that's who you want to be, the drummer in Coldplay. Right. That's, that's, I, yeah. I, I like that. That's a good idea. All right. Now, I'm going to skip number four. I'm going to come back to number four because there's another story involved with number four. Um and I'm actually going to change it. So, like, this is editing on the fly. Okay, but so I'm going to ask you then about uh, Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. What's your preferred social media? Oh, well, uh, Instagram. <laughs> can that oh, be on the okay. pile? Yeah, I can put that on the pile. I'll allow that. That means Maybe. I win, though. I guess that's okay well that's good I've got a good sure. I've got a good lead I can accept that you know you can't win everything um mainly because the only things I look at on Instagram are people's pets mm-hmm. loads of really good uh, sort of comic book and illustrative artists sure. and then um you know the occasional dabble into a bit of food and a little bit of clothing but generally my Instagram is just things that make me quite quite happy whereas you know Twitter's good for conversations LinkedIn is forgive me not something I'm fully on board with and not something that I'm fully sure I know how to use in any meaningful way. Mm-hmm. And uh, Facebook is Facebook. It's the, do- it's the, it's the bad place. <laughs> Facebook, is, Facebook is, is just should be set on fire. And uh, yeah, but I'm taking, I mean, I'm aware that they're all owned by the same person anyway, so it doesn't make any difference. But for me, comic comic book artists and, and pets on Instagram are, are part and parcel of the the suit the self soothing that has had to happen over the last couple of years. That sounds like a good reason. I, I like that's why I, I, I don't fall down I guess I'm too old to fall down the rabbit hole of like worrying about what everybody else is doing. I like to go, oh my God, you're like made this great thing for dinner or oh, look at that dog doing a dumb mm-hmm. thing. Oh yeah, like your yeah. kid your your kid's done something good. This is amazing. I like this. Yeah. Exactly. I I would agree. All right. So so now we, we, I think we'll call you. It's two one and one. We'll call this so far. I got one point. You have two, and then we'll call one a tie. Because William and Harry seem like a little bit like. Eh. Um, all right. So then, which which one was worse, twenty twenty or twenty twenty one? Twenty twenty one. Yeah. Okay. I tell think, me I why? Think, because I, I feel like harder. that's. I feel like that's that's the way I feel too. It's like I knew what I was dealing with in 2020, and this year I can't never I can't get a grasp on what I'm dealing with. Yeah, and I think 2020 was so like it all just sort of happened to us, right? And it was all just it yeah. was just this sort of like massive onslaught of stuff and crisis and panic and crisis and panic. And I remember mm-hmm. getting toward the end of it, and you know, this time last year being completely uncertain about next year but still not having any idea and any solutions. So the mm-hmm. thing that I found hardest about 2021 is a, there's a, there's just an endurance point, you know, we're all, we're all tired. And, and I don't know, um, I don't know how it worked where, where you are, but the, obviously the UK introduced the, this, this furlough scheme that allowed people to um, be put on short time working and, and to be paid for not working, which was to support organizations. It was a brilliant thing, but everybody talks about the summer where nobody worked and we did, I didn't get that. Just worked straight through the whole thing more than I've ever worked in my life. So for, to come into 2021 and it still just be like, Oh, and to know, like I think part of 2020 was just dealing with what happened mm-hmm. and you couldn't see it coming. Whereas I think in 21, it was almost like, you know, being able to see the bridge that you can't stop in time to go over the edge of. And oh, it was, mm-hmm. 
and trying just trying to achieve something you know we got a festival and that was great and there was some moments of light and and, and wonder in it but it has just it feels I feel like I've been beaten up repeatedly by mm-hmm. many different people whereas I feel like 2020 was um was everybody was just sort of a bit lost and a bit stuck so yeah, yeah 21 was worse I, yeah, I, I agree because in the states and again, you know, like different situations, different places in June. Right. Like you like most a lot of adults were fully vaccinated. It was like, on, oh, man, we were like, YOLO, this thing was over. Yeah, yeah. And so like for about three weeks, it was like the it was that hedonistic summer that everybody's talking about. It was like on, I was everywhere. And then all of a sudden it was like, no, it's all, no. It's Get all back, back inside. Yeah, it's all back to hell in a handbasket here. And, yeah. and I think it was that like little bit of like lessening of the like. You know, you can just like lock yourself in and focus, or at least I can. And I was like, I was cool. And then as soon as it like there was like a break, it became just incredibly difficult to like mentally wrap my head around everything. Well, don't they say it's the hope that'll kill you? I think that's that yeah. seems to be the saying, especially yeah. when you talk to British people or yeah. people from the UK. Uh, that's a very uh, our <laughs> cheery demeanor. We're like, don't get your hopes <laughs> up, you'll only be disappointed. Right. Um, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, but turns out we were right. We were right all along. We should never have got our hopes up because 2020 was rubbish. <laughs> but 2021 was like even worse yes. because you got your hopes up, you suckers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So just stick to channel your inner Brit and you, you can't go far wrong. Yes. Okay. So now this question, number six here, this is going to probably be, this is going to be peak question, I believe, because this, go, this reflects, um, uh, uh, what we're uh, back and forth we had about going to Intex in Florida. This reflects um, a whole bunch of stuff uh, about that. Uh, various conversations all coming together at once here, and I think this is going to be probably the greatest question, uh, quick fire question yet in all the episodes that I've done. Uh, so the the question is: Gator wrestling or Disney? Oh, Disney. <laughs> wait, it's, wait, wait, hold on. No, I have a clarifying question. Do yeah. I have to wrestle the Gator? Or no, am I watching somebody else? We're just watching somebody because remember, okay. we're like, going, even, we're going to go to the the Gator wrestling. Even <laughs> then, even then, Disney is preferable because I feel like Disney is Disney and it's amazing. But I, I was slightly swayed by the idea that I might get to wrestle the Gator, and then I had to have a conversation inside my own brain about the fact that that would be a terrible idea. We could make that happen. Though. I'm certain. I, oh. I just, I'm certain I could find the person that would let you wrestle the Gator. We've all got to die somehow, right? <laughs> maybe, maybe that's go, the way I go. As an internet meme. <laughs> <laughs> well she died doing what she loved wrestling, wrestling gators oh no it would have to be it is i mean i will miss all the intix pals but actually i'm I'm most gutted about not dragging a bunch of um a bunch of grown-ups to disneyland with me just by glaring at them until they agree because i've always wanted to go and i've never been and, and i'm not going to get my chance yet so yeah I mean, I, I I was just like already on the list. You're like, oh, well, Dave will go. He'll do whatever. He, he's he's easy to get. He's easy to sucker into almost everything. <laughs> it's the rest of these cl- people. I'll have to uh, the crowd. I'll have to like twist their arm a little bit. But Dave, Dave's in. I'm, I know he'll go with me. It's awesome. All right. So final question then, and then we can have like a, a normal conversation. Even though I think the quick fire like seems to like do, you you seem to get a lot out of this. I I, I found. But um, so. I have a pretty good audience of people that listen to this thing. And um, this was the most common question when I was surveying the audience for what they wanted me to ask Lindsay Jackson. This is it. This is is it. It's a yes or no question. Are you ready? No. 
<laughs> Probably the right answer here too. Um, do you mind if we all come to stay at your flat for for the Fringe Festival in 2022? <laughs> <laughs> no. However. Okay, so here's the deal. If you want to stay, first of all, I have a very tiny little terraced house. Um, so if you do want to stay at my house, then there's three key rules during the fringe. You can't stay the whole time. Uh, you get a key and maybe a map of how the bosses work and that's it. And you have to look after yourself. And then you're more than welcome. If you can come, I have lots of pals that come for a couple of days um, <clears throat> and just make themselves at home and they know that they can come find me and run themselves around. If you want me to look after you for three days, then you need to go somewhere else. But yeah, sure, come along guys. I'll uh, I'll send you my address. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, I believe there, there was heavy sarcasm in that too. So don't go sending Lindsay any emails. The only person allowed to come is me. So it's fine. Okay. You're more All right. than welcome. More than welcome. But you also can't stay for more than two days because that will just that's just stressful for everybody. That's exactly Deal? right. Uh, I don't. I, I can't stay for more than two or three days in most places. Uh, this is how I am. Like I like to keep moving. But all right. So let's see here. Now um, we had a whole list, ar- arms list of stuff to talk about. But the first thing I want to talk to you about is how the Fringe Festival ha- adapted to the pandemic because you did a. I would say a better job than most organizations of being adaptable and flexible and um, recreating the event that still held true to what you were doing. Um, but recognizing that like you, you, like you were talking about before is Scotland, you've had to highlight public health over everything else. Um, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, the situation you dealt with during the pandemic and, you know, what kind of guided some of the decision-making processes that helped you be successful in recreating the French festival? Yeah. Um, oh, they kind of happened. You've got sort of two waves. You've got a 2020 wave and a 21 wave. Um, 20, I'll cover briefly. Um, when it was obvious it wasn't happening, the sort of key priorities were to give back the money that we'd taken from artists for the services that they were expecting during the festival and, you know, the fees for registration and ticketing and all that sort of stuff because they were as broke as we were, um, which obviously left us in a really difficult position and, and we had to solve that Um so 2020 was about um, making sure that we were giving back to the artists, but also giving them an opportunity. And there wasn't a huge amount of space to do that. We were, we didn't have any time. We didn't have any money. Nobody really knew what they were doing in that digital space effectively. So we put in a few little things along the way um, in 2020 um, that were useful in sort of keeping the conversations going. And then a couple of key interventions, um, one of which was always on the back burner anyway that we wanted to do um, was our fringe marketplace. So for those of you that don't really know, or for, for your listeners that don't really know, the fringe is, um, the, fringe is a fest- is a, the festival fringe is a, a live event, obviously. And it's the largest single arts event in the world. It's enormous. Um, it happens every year. But what a lot of people don't rec- really understand is that it's an industry marketplace like Cannes or the Venice Biennale or Dubai Expo or any of those. Loads of work is bought and sold at Fringe. Um, and that marketplace conversation, when we spoke to the industry out there nationally and internationally, they were they were saying, well, when we come out the other side of the pandemic, we're going to need work and we need to know what work is out there. So we we, we put that we moved, we built a place that that could happen online called Marketplace. Um, and that's actually that's grown from strength to strength. And COVID has sort of pushed us to do that with a bit more urgency. Um, and then 2020, we, we did a bit of fundraising, collective fundraising activity, but there wasn't really much we could do. So when it came to 21, 
um, we had sort of three models. Um, one was the fringe just, it all just comes back. COVID magically disappears. One was it comes back with um, serious restrictions and, and potentially no capacity for live or very limited capacity for live. Um, and then a digital only version. And where we ended up with um, was somewhere in between. So the Fringe in 21 had about 900 shows, sort of half of which were online. Um, all the live stuff happened what felt in a felt what felt like about 20 minutes but it was probably a couple of months in the end um and really the the key the key principle for us um in terms of moving online which i think is what a lot of people are more um is the thing that we did that others did differently um a it was still allowing people to do it the way they want to do it so that's the whole principle of the fringe there isn't a structure you're supposed to fit into there isn't somebody who says you can or can't come you have to find a stage on which to tell your story and then you can be part of the fringe and that was as true online as it was anywhere else so that was the first principle was that it had to be open to everybody and that meant we were pushing the edges of what it means to be part of the fringe because you could be part of the fringe sat in your living room in you know Calcutta or uh, you know Alaska uh, which was quite interesting for us um, and quite novel um, but also the in the digital space if artists wanted to charge for work that had to be that we had to um, have in place a process that and they allowed people to buy that work and to to go through that ticketing transaction and access control securely um, and there was a lot of work in those conversations about saying you have that people just assume that that work is valueless or that people won't pay for it or that artists don't want to charge for it and there's lots of free content out online and there's lots of really good high quality free live performance content but that principle of of supporting artists to generate revenue from their work both live which is obviously you know our bread and butter and we can do that with our eyes closed um, and in digital which we had no experience or knowledge or clue of what we were doing uh, so we had a pretty steep learning curve um yeah and then it was all it was about trying to replicate some of the reasons why people would bring their work to the fringe or why an audience would come to the fringe and it's all about that connection and that space to do that so where we could replicate that online which is successful in parts and not in others um and then really the live event itself uh was just about putting back the sort of spirit of the fringe and actually it was more fringy than it ever has been because there was lots of um there was lots of stuff in little corners and lots of spaces that um were unusually able to be used because of the ventilation system or the way that they were set up so we had a very fringy fringe in that it didn't look and feel quite like it normally does and and that was quite surprising I think for a number of, of audiences and for us we were a bit like oh this all feels very different but there's loads in there I could keep talking for about an hour and a half <laughs> <laughs> well let me ask you one thing because we we were talking about this beforehand and it was about uh, understanding value and mm-hmm. like focusing on the profit and you know really like being willing to stand up for what you're worth <laughs> and the, is, part of the challenge you just talked about was that a lot of too often people are assuming that the work that was maybe being delivered digitally or certain work didn't have any value and then you said uh, that you didn't really have a lot of experience pricing things digitally um, you know, so well, how did you handle that? Like, you know, what was the process like? Because I, I mean, I know that like eventually you had to come to a decision, you know, and how did you walk through that? Because it seems to me often or too many organizations just, they kind of just 
folded their cards in and said, yeah, you know, we'll put these things on online, but people don't find value in it. And then I know that there's research because I've shared research with people that shows that like, actually people will still value the stuff tremendously and they'll almost pay just as much, if not the same amount Mm -hmm. for a digital performance as they would a in-person performance, if the value's there and and they perceive it, not you, they do. Yeah, and actually the the, the cop-out in this is that the pricing for a fringe ticket is decided by the company and the venue. It's not decided by us. So it's that that whole model that our job is to allow people to fringe however they want to fringe. So <laughs> some of that was there's always a there's always a, a strong free fringe um presence live and there wasn't there was in the digital space. Although interestingly, um many of them were happy to engage in um the the process that required customers to pay a booking fee because they wanted those guaranteed bookings and they wanted that secure transaction that meant their link wasn't then you know the URL to their show just then wasn't widely available to be shared um uh, it was for artists to decide the value of their show and that what we we did a couple of things to help facilitate that so they were able to price at whatever they wanted and you know in an, as in any year if an artist is wildly over or underpricing their work we'll be like are you sure you put your pricing just right and um, we it was about sharing information but then it was about adding additional functionality so we'd never had a pay what you want option um so we have had a pay what you want option historically which is that you can buy a ticket in advance or make a donation at the door but it's always been a fixed ticket price so you pay like five pound mm-hmm. and that guarantees you your seat and then there's an expectation that you're topping up at the venue because it's worth more than that um uh whereas we added sort of uh, sort of pay what you can i suppose rather than pay what you want so you know many shows were listed with different price brackets particularly in that digital space we integrated um every show had the option to when they're um, in the sort of framework of the player to offer uh, link outs to donations and to ask people for donations and that was quite successful and then um, we had a great there was a whole thing around charging and the work there's not it's, there wasn't not a lot of work in putting in a, a secure um, a a secure player and then a secure ticketing transaction and access control transaction not just for our player but for half a dozen other players so the choice to invest in that is because actually we did there was a university academic um, in Edinburgh who is a fringe performer himself and he's really into sort of data and um, and fintech stuff. So it's a sort of perfect storm. They did a piece of research across 2020 about digital engagement and digital pricing and digital monetization and merchandising and TikTok and Patreon. And they looked at it for the fringe and they they came and presented that report to our board. And it gave us some really clear indicators, as you say, that the work has value and people will pay for what's perceived to be value. And even if it isn't a huge amount, then that still indicates that there's there's an exchange happening here and they're potentially more engaged with, with the product rather, rather than it just being freely available. And the the challenge with freely available work is everybody sort of says, oh, I'll watch it later. Mm-hmm. I'll watch it later. I'll watch it later. I'll watch it later. And then it, then it's gone. Um, so it was really just about putting all of those things together and then and then letting people make their own choices in that space and, and put it together how best suited them in the way that we would in a in a live fringe. And even in the live fringe, the pricing structure didn't change dramatically. I think there was a, you know, there was an expected price increase in tickets um, because life is just much more expensive than it used to be. But actually there was um there was a real appetite from audiences that meant that um people were able to price as they normally would and still generate good revenues um, in order to sort of subsidize the the risk that they take in bringing the work there. So 
it's all I mean the the, gu- the guiding principle of the fringe society is just give people the information so they can make informed choices because mm-hmm. we're not telling them how to do it we're just trying to say here's all of the facts now you do what you want to do yeah oh yeah I, I just like I mean I like the conversation because again we you know and this is something we'll come to in a minute it's just that like I want to see people receive value for the work they're doing and you know and I don't like people to necessarily um feel like they have to make a false choice I think mm-hmm. it would be the way where it's like oh and hey look this is all this is the only thing you can be valuable for and you know actually there's tons and tons of ways I mean I don't think I don't know if you were there but I, I brought this up yesterday in a, a conversation that uh, that I'll post as well about the time in intix in Dallas where I uh, insulted somebody in the crowd because they they were like going well we're limited in what we can make money off of because there's like only six ways we can do it and i go then you should go look for a new job because that that is a defeatist attitude and if that's what you believe go go find a new job <laughs> and that it was is, it, it came off much make friends <laughs> yeah no it came off much harsher than i wanted it to but then it came also out of that though i created the i said i'm going to create 101 ways for that you can monetize a live event Right. And I'm going to give it away to you free because I just don't want that attitude because unfortunately that was the attitude that was pervasive. You know, it's like, oh, we can only do certain things because that's the way it's always been done. And, you know, it's like the pricing thing. I know that or or just the the whole experience of the French, you didn't you you didn't fall back on that. Like, well, we 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 have no choice because this is the way it's always been done. You, You said, no, let's create something that's special. That's still the French. But instead of going, well, we're limited by these things. I mean, the example of like being able to like be a part of the fringe if you're in Calcutta or you're in Alaska is pretty awesome, right? And yeah. so then the question I want to ask is like knowing now that like you you probably have two or three different paths that you're looking at for the next year. What are gonna you know? How are you going? How is the, the the festival in 2022 going to evolve to bring in some of the best things that you learned? I mean, how do you take the turn the lemons into lemonade? I guess is like the the stupid cliche, but you know what? How is this evolve helping you evolve? Yeah, it, it, there's a, there's loads of stuff, and I think up it's, it's that practical thing about trying in the middle of all of this when you've got a planning cycle ahead of you that that is a million miles an hour, and time is apparently no longer a thing; it's just whizzing by. That you've got um, you've got to try and let the good stuff rise to the surface and retain the principles of what you were trying to achieve, and be pretty clear and honest with yourself and and each other about what bits of it didn't didn't work, and and actually the many com many organizations will be feeling this not throwing good money after bad and that sort of you know sunk cost fallacy where it's like but we spent so much on doing that last year it's like and it didn't work let's let it die and move on um so i think some of the sort of things things that happen in edinburgh this year and the way that people had to approach edinburgh is not because you know there wasn't an elective choice to be all sort of mm-hmm. evangelical about our value we had no choice the the festival is not subsidized the artists are not subsidized everybody had to figure out how to make their balance sheets work um and actually the one of the things that that happened this year that had never really happened before is that there was there was funding made available to fringe venue producers to be able to to under underwrite that work um, and actually to underwrite the risk, which meant they were better able to give artists the space to to perform and, and to 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 not run the festival at that 99.99% capacity that it can run at at times. And I think some of that is what we want to keep, although 
the balance sheet has to work. That's that's always the problem with the fringes. The there's the ideal and the money never really quite match. But we would want to keep the space to do things at a slightly gentler pace because I think everybody's a bit damaged and broken and and worn out. I think our our um our capacity to operate in that last minute full capacity state state of play is is really diminished. And if we're not careful, we're going to lose some really good people. Um, and then I think, you know, with with digital, you know, we the fringe is this enormous thing in a normal year. It's three million tickets, um, you know, 4000 shows, 300 venues, number, 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 number. In 2021, it was about just under 400,000 tickets, which is still an enormous number of tickets mm-hmm. of which, say, 14 and a half thousand of those were for digital shows. But those were 14 and a half thousand paid for digital tickets. So there's a whole free bit that we couldn't measure because that was just, you know, open access URLs on, on show listings. Fourteen and a half thousand people, fourteen and a half thousand tickets were sold for digital content, um, which is more than some festivals in its entirety. And it's more than so and the fringe is always like that because it's it's of such a scale. And that principle that says there is an audience for this work so what we're doing at the moment is trying to understand who that audience is is it a general public ticket buying audience largely no is it quite a niche fan audience is it an industry audience potentially other huge gains to be had in terms of um accessibility and whether that's because you live three minutes walk from the fringe venue but you've got an eight week old baby asleep upstairs or you live in the other side of the world and you couldn't possibly ever afford to come to Edinburgh or bring your work to Edinburgh so we're working through um who who was watching the work online what value it was bringing and then how we maintain that value to mutual benefit so and then not um not being precious about things that we tried and failed because lots of things, if anything, the what the one of the there were no good things out of COVID. The whole thing sucks. But the, some of the some of the positives of 20 and 21 were as an organisation, sort of trying to support this huge festival. Change was always quite slow, and because we had no choice, and because it was do or die, uh, we we had a very um, very high appetite for risk and a high ap- appetite for just giving something a go and being very accepting if stuff didn't work and now in that sort of slightly more controlled planning for 22 it's actually trying to talk people back from some of that it's like no the risk appetite's great i'm really glad that we've accelerated some of these things but also maybe take a few days and think about whether we should do this and so watching people take that time to sort of say oh yeah we'll keep that we'll dump that that didn't work let's go out and find out actually how people felt about that um, and then I think the in the live space, I think just the fringe is subject to an awful lot of criticism uh, locally, nationally, internationally. It's too big. It's too commercial. It's not big enough. It's not commercial enough. It's too much of this. It's too much of that. Stuart Lee says it's never going again. The fringe gets an awful lot of negative press and an awful lot of negative attention. And it's a sort of symptom of a wider sort of frustration with culture in the UK. I, you know, we're not some of it's our fault and some of it is just we're just the punching bag because we're, we're nice and big and shiny. We've never had such a massive outpouring, unprompted of sort of love and support. And that's a really key thing to remember. We had 2020 and into 2021, just loads of people messaging and social media and and, uh, responding to email outs, just sort of telling us how much they missed it, how much they loved it, how much they couldn't wait for it to come back. We had loads of people donate to crowdfunders for us, for artists. We had loads of donations to our ticketing transaction. You know, ordinarily it's, it was half of what we'd get in a full year, even though we were so much smaller than ever. So we had this massive outpouring of of people going, ah, we quite like 
the fringe actually and and that from the residents to the international community so that's one of the things to keep is to say you know let's let's put it back together in a way that works for all of us um and let's do it in a way that that reminds us why we love this rather than why we're on a treadmill of um you know sort of most profit most marginal gain most you know getting out of that mindset of it being yes it's a business and yes the you know people need to make money in order to survive and people are entitled to make money out of culture mm -hmm. you know what a what a controversial thought that it's okay to earn a living as an artist but to remember what the 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 reason why we do it and the reason why people love it um that that's that's one of the things that i think we need to try and keep in mind when we end up in the uh, minutiae of planning for next year yeah, and there's so much there that that I that I dig. Um, oh no, no, it's all, it's you know, uh, th this is a big love fest here between us. Like you know, there's no <laughs> there's nobody that's like uh, you know. I, I think we 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 both admit that we like you know are fans of each other. Uh, and that we're you know like we have fun when we see each other. So that's like I don't think that's going to come as a, a anything strange to people. But there's so much about the answer and the approach that like is th that you should be. Um, that it's like wonderful to hear right like the first thing is if i can break the habit of people in the arts to think that they don't that there's something wrong with being commercially driven because it allows you to fill, fulfill your mission right like you don't have to be um nasty about it or it doesn't have to be a bad thing it's just like if you make you have to make money to keep the venture going and that's just a full stop right and it's not a dirty word because if you do a good job of the commercial aspect of it it allows you to even more effectively fulfill your mission i you know at least i think or that's at least that's what i try to tell people mm. but what i really want to, um to, to, to ask about is this idea of the sunk cost because i i did not have this in my notes to prepare for because that's often something that um i struggle with getting people to understand it's like I think you and I share a similar belief and you kind of always have to be like a little bit looking for change and kind of always focusing on creating change. And there's a certain amount of experimentation that always needs to take place. On the other side, people are very um, conscious that uh, too many environments, if they make a mistake, it, they're penalized for it. If you can, to me, right, the, the challenge of sunk costs becomes like going, hey, look, if you made a, a decision, a what would be termed a wise decision about taking a risk and it didn't work, as long as you understood why you'd made the decision, you made it with uh, full knowledge that like there's a certain pr likelihood that it might not work or it might work and that you learn either why it worked or what didn't work or something came out of it, it's okay to like say it didn't work and here's why and here's how we can do it different or how we can do it better or how mm -hmm. we can make it successful as opposed to just doing something because it always has been done this way. And there's a couple of clients I work with who are very good at this. And there's some clients I work with who are very bad at this. <laughs> uh, how you know? But how did how do you drill that into people? How do you get? How do you create a culture around that? Because it's difficult. I mean, that you know, that was a long way of me getting to the the, the problem with people aren't doing it because they don't want to. They're not doing it because it's hard. Because like the incentives are not always there, right? Like you don't always have a leader like you or you know, and like the people at the fringe who are saying like, oh yeah, if we make a mistake, it's cool, and we can. We just recognize that we move on. Most of the time they say, oh, we recognize that we move on. And then they, you know, they smack you around for it. Mm -hmm. and how, so how do you manage that? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, it does come down to people. And actually, I think if you don't believe it, 
if you genuinely don't think it's okay to make mistakes and I won't throw you under the bus for that, then you're never going to run an organization that that's going to have that as an attitude. Because ultimately, whether whatever you might think about yourself as, as a leader, your team, you know, your, the people that work for you in some way see themselves one day being in your job, not necessarily being you. That sounds far too, far too egotistical. So if you say, no, it's cool if we make mistakes and then they make make a mistake and yeah, you do. Well, there's two. There's two tricks here. There's the very obvious one, which is they make a mistake, and then you turn around, and you're like, you call them out for it. You, you drag them around, you fire them, whatever it is you do that says that's unacceptable. You'll, you know, get out. But the more insidious thing that happens, and this is where I think people don't recognise that it's a bad leadership trick, is when somebody says that they're struggling with something, or they're asking a question, or they they bring a problem to you that they don't have a solution to. The answer is, well, clearly you can't do that. I'm going to do it, or I'm going to give it to somebody else, rather than you know it's all very sort of it's all very simple stuff it's a coaching style rather than a sort of directive style where you're sort of saying well because actually nine times out of ten they do know they just want to talk it through mm -hmm. and actually the more confidence your your employees your team your people your you know whether they're front of house or they're you know creating brand spanky shiny magical new things in, in the corner the more they can come to you and say I've got a sort of half formed idea that I'd really like to bash about or I'm really struggling with this thing and they can have a proper conversation but if you don't it's like anything if you don't believe it and you don't live it you can say it until the cows come home but you're never going to get people to work working for you who will take that approach if they never see you do it. And also you have to you have to you have to be there with them, you know, and if you tell them you're not going to throw them under the bus, don't throw them under the bus. It's you know, that to me is 101 of of leadership. Right. It's like if you tell someone that you've got their back, then you have to have their back and that you've got to stand by the decisions that you've made. And one mm -hmm. of the things that COVID did was that. I think our culture is pretty good for that, but there's still resistance and people still, you know, no matter how many times you tell them, they're not going to get into trouble or they're not going to get fired or, you know, mistakes are agreeable. That's hard to get into your psyche if it doesn't, if you don't live it. And in COVID, everybody lived it. Everybody was part and parcel of trying stuff that didn't work, of working tirelessly on stuff that then just fell over or that never happened. And in living that together and coming through the other side of it with that set of values in, in hand that says we're a team. So we're going to do all this together and we're going to we're going to make sure that no man left behind sort of thing that that gives you a, a sort of solidarity and a strength that, you know, sort of it's almost like a you know you go through a trauma together and you come out yeah. of the side of it best of buds um so but yeah if you don't believe it then don't say it because actually right. you know what you believe is mistakes are unacceptable and you won't you won't tolerate it then you shouldn't be telling your people anything other than that because people need to work in an honest environment mm -hmm. i see i don't understand it either because the the chat or the challenge for me is I don't understand it because there's like so many people who run around like they never made the mistake. And I'm like, <laughs> going, <laughs> I'm like, going, I, all I ever did was made mistakes. And, yeah. that's, and the reason I even know some of this stuff now is because of God knows how many mistakes I made. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, you know, and I continue to make them right because, you know, I, I'm doing a, a thing now and it's like, good, it's because you talk to people. And I was like, well, most of the time, like with these the projects that I'm working on, the way I figure out how to tackle it is like. I give there's a lot of bad ideas that come out of the uh -huh. <laughs> out of the Dave machine here. Um, and <laughs> and so like part of it's like having the conversations with people about like what is this thing? And I've found, and this is I don't know if it's a leadership style or like it, it works with what you're talking about, was like most of the time when people come to you and they have an idea or they have like something they're working on, they they just want 
the safe space to be able to like talk to you about it and like have it not be yeah. judgmental because they need to hear it in the world to make it like so yeah yes that works or you know oh as soon as i said it that didn't seem right and mm-hmm. and you know so it's not like there for judgment it's there because i just need a way to air it in a different way and to me i think that's to me i think that's great because um you know the opposite of a, a, a good idea can still be a good idea or the, and the opposite of a bad idea can be a good idea and sometimes just like having somebody else hear the idea gives you 10 new ideas it's yep but i mean that you know that's me it's this uh, this idea that you can create in isolation or you can you can innovate in isolation it, you know we we as a as a sort of certainly western culture we idolize the individual whether that's you know the individuals of the business world or you know your mark zuckerbergs and your bill gates and whoever but we also have this culture of individualism that's been done to us since the you know sort of reagan thatcher years where it's like you are in charge you can manifest your own destiny and it's like there's absolutely nothing wrong in fact there's more reward in being part of of a collective Mm -hmm. that are achieving something and that everybody's bringing the bits that they're really good at and Mm -hmm. and actually in that space being really comfortable to share half an idea and let it float around and and let somebody else pick it up and run with it because actually they can do a much better job of it than you like this this notion that you know we're all individually kings it's like well why can't we just actually collectively be you know citizens of the world who are working for collective good you know Mm -hmm. i think i'm saying burn all billionaires but that might be a different chat (laughs) that definitely comes up on your twitter channel twitter channel so that's uh, but that's totally um that's a different I just think quick you, question. you can't be a billionaire unless you've exploited other people I just don't see how it's possible and, and in a world where people are, are entitled to good work like people are entitled to make some money fine but people are also entitled to good quality work and good quality jobs and good quality pay and I'm not um yeah I, I it, it baffles me that other people that not everybody believes that to be true I um it's you know we were talking this is like a conversation we were having before it's I struggle with it because you know I grew up in obviously I have a marketing background I studied strategy uh at, for, at Cambridge I you know I studied like I've got all these like definite corporate and capitalist uh credentials and but at the same time I can come through like the Peter Drucker thing where it's like when you have to make money because you, you, to have the enterprise go on but if your only goal is that you maximize the profit and maximize the revenue, then there's something fundamentally wrong with your business. It's unhealthy. And so I, I struggle with this because the, the thing is, is like if the incentives are screwed up, then like, you know, which, which they are right now, because we don't do anything. We can't do anything alone. Right. I mean, no. like we're, we're, we're relatively weak and feeble animals, <laughs> um, you know, and like the, the reason that we've had like been able to build, events and organizations all it's because of our ability to work together so this individualism streak that's like uh you know gone nuts in america to be quite frank is um it's just baffling to me but i guess that's because i have um you know maybe that's the only good thing that came out of my education all this education is that like i have a more global and like historical Mm -hmm. perspective and so i i tend to agree with you it's impossible to innovate in isolation Yep. It's much more if you want to go and create something great, right? So even if you're talking about Steve Jobs or Mark Zuckerberg who get held held up as these icons, um, I'm pretty sure Mark Zuckerberg didn't didn't and doesn't continue to code everything about Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp alone. And Steve Jobs didn't, 
you know, create the mm. the iPod, the <laughs> the the AirPods, all of these things by himself either. It, you know, it no. it takes you know, it take there there are of course individual performers that are amazing, but the team, right? I I'll give you a good example. Here's the thing. Um, I was, you know, it's like take your favorite band, right, of all time. If you go see one of the individual artists, it's not the same experience as if you go see the band. There's magic to go in and see it, right? If um, I've gone to see many, many Peter Buck bands, uh, you know, different bands <laughs> that Peter Buck from R.E.M. is in. There's nothing as magical as seeing R.E.M. They're not good? Right. They're not good? Well, they're, they're good, yeah. but they're not the same. There's magic it, in the team. And, and the flip side, I think, is like a lot of my sort of direct team report are operational and, and actually um, – you know, the the sort of operations mantra is if you're doing it well no one can see it and uh, you know the the this is really true I, I don't watch many musicals which uh, may might horrify many people listening to this but um they well they don't come up very much in fringe theater because they're quite expensive but the the uh, the thing I was blown away most by in Hamilton was the ensemble cast. So you've got all these stars, you've got all these big hitters, you've got, you know, I saw the London, the London version of it and mm-hmm. it was brilliant. And it's, you know, voices, voices of angels, but actually the work going on in the background that, that actually made that production a whole different level was all down to a, an almost entirely anonymous ensemble cast. And they worked in a way as to be almost invisible, but it would have been awful without them and it's that thing that you you can't have and this is this is why you know in a live event space or even a sports space you know you've got stars you've always got someone on the stage doing the thing and has got the spotlight on them whether they're running really fast or jumping really high or singing really beautifully none of that happens without like 50,000 people around them and Mm -hmm. anybody who thinks that they've got where they are purely or or purely on their own hard work alone is an absolute idiot (laughs) Yeah. And oh, yeah. you know, is 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 clearly has you know used used people and cycled through them, and and then you know just get, oh I got here all by myself. It's like no no you just destroyed everybody along the way, and now you're all on now you're by yourself. That's different. Um, yeah. yeah, it's a team in it. Yeah, no no, and and the Hamilton example is very. Um, I like that one because I feel the same way about the producers, which is um, I went to see Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick. Um, I would say I think four times, and it, it was <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, it's the, that was like sort of my thing at the time, and but it was really the whole cast. It wasn't just Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick; it was everybody, yeah. and it was you know, and it was uh, phenomenal because if you just saw Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick standing out there, it would have been like they are. Pro- I mean, they're great actors. But like they can't do it alone. It's, well, it's then the it would have been a fringe show. <laughs> then it would have yeah. been a fringe show for sure. I think I might have seen that fringe show actually. <laughs> and maybe if they like, if they were also playing instruments while they were doing it, then it would have been pretty great. That would, that would, that I would have totally in bought black into. From head to toe. Oh, it would have been amazing. <laughs> yeah. or, or even better, they could have dressed like the Blue Man Group and done the Ooh. producers. Yeah. See, this will be my friend's show next year. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I like, to be honest, I would buy friend, it. <laughs> the one thing we know about our fringe audiences is they're desperate to see something they won't see anywhere else. So the 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 wild and wacky and slightly weird and and quirky stuff does sell. I once I once went to see a fringe show, which was a Korean dance company. Um, purely on the basis that somebody handed me a flyer and quite often in Edinburgh people staple their reviews to their mm-hmm. flyers to sort of you know add a little bit of extra context and they'd stapled a little teeny tiny little white slip of paper 
and uh, the review three sort of star three stars batshit crazy and I was like sold no idea what happened it was a, it was a, it was a dance ode, a music and dance ode to a mountain in in um, South Korea I lost myself in it for a whole hour it was absolutely bonkers and it was it was just what I needed I was I was nowhere but in that room for that hour and purely on the basis of, of that review I was like yep that that's that that's the fringe it would be hard for me not to um, go to a show that had three star reviews and it said bad shit crazy. Yeah. I would be it would be nearly impossible to like not go. That's to that. marketing. I'm not yes. I'm not a marketer, but that was good marketing. Um, oh, yeah. that's great marketing. That's that <laughs> shit crazy. I want to see that yeah. show now. As a, as opposed to the time I walked past a uh, bless her, she was trying very hard. Flying's a big thing in Edinburgh. I walked past a girl on one of the bridges on a very rainy weekday morning, uh, stop a couple and ask them if they wanted to see a play about child abuse. And I was like, no, babes, that's that's not that's not your opening line. Like, no, the answer to that question is always no. You need to yeah. find a different pitch. Like, I'm sure your play is beautiful and thoughtful and really, and there's a, there is a market for that stuff in the fringe for sure, but that's not your opening gambit to, you know, a couple in their mid-50s who just got themselves a croissant from Sainsbury's. Like, there that's not a sales pitch it's uh oh bless them they, what's they, the opposite of good marketing that oh that's yeah that's misguided marketing i think that yeah, one might that, be but that's a bad pitch right there that's yeah. awful of course i would i would i would want to see that but still but that's <laughs> I, love a, I love a train wreck myself but you know that's oh. me that's it. I mean, the play, the play could have been beautiful. The play could have been wonderful, but the chance of them getting people in to see it with that as their opening pitch is uh, is limited. But um, oh, you could say that again. Yes. Mm-hmm. All right. So now let me ask you. Let me switch it up a little bit here because uh, unfortunately you won't be able to go to go to Florida. No. Um. And 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 that's uh to the detriment of all of us. Um. But you were gonna you're gonna still do a virtual session about yeah. industry engagement. So can you give us a little bit of a preview about this? Because this is a very important part about the French Festival mm-hmm. and just like what you work on in general. Yeah, so um, we're gonna I'm gonna present a case study of what we did around our marketplace and and how we made sure that those conversations were the people um, who are coming to the fringe in a in a normal regular year to uh, to buy work to meet people to scout for talent you know that that's everything mm-hmm. um from tv script writers to festival producers to programmers you know the whole gambit of them you know in a normal year it's about 1500 delegates um in, in this sort of marketplace space uh so we have um the, I'll be talking about how we've we moved that into the online space in 20 and the evolution of that for 21 and what that's going to look like going forward because actually it's a it's not a COVID response in any way and um, the COVID accelerated it for sure because we, we were like oh we have to do this now but really it's about um, that balance of particularly with international um, industry delegates is uh, we're all really mindful that you know the the version where we're all flying around the world uh, on mass is is probably not sustainable in the long term. So we can bring industry in from around the world, and you know that rather than four programmers from the Sydney Festival come, one of them comes is seeing work live, and there's an opportunity. So marketplace um, is uh, shows are recommended or, or put forward by venue programmers. Uh, we have a series of associates whose job is to sort of um, to look at the work and to be informed about the work and to be able to engage in conversations about the work with potential buyers and and essentially it's the same thing with the fringe it's just about 
giving people information, facilitating conversation and then letting it happen. And we know that, you know, you it, it doesn't, I mean, we've never done a piece of research because we're not quite sure how you, where you would even start the research, but you can really clearly see in the autumn winter programmes, particularly around the UK of, of key venues around the UK, um, the fringe. And you can even clearly see, you know, we have a, a regular TV show um, here called Mock the Week, which is a sort of panel show, a sort of satirical news show hosted by a Dara Brian, who's quite a famous Irish comedian. The panellists, they're very good at showcasing new talent. Uh, they do a good mix of established TV talent and new talent. You'll see Dara Brian at the Fringe and you'll see those talent that you've seen him in the audience of on those stages. There's a direct correlation between what's happening in Edinburgh to what's then happening to people's careers. So the intake session will be looking at, at that in the digital space. Um, and uh, and I think Edmund, we're presenting a long time alongside Edmonton Fringe, who are going to talk about how what it was like from their point of view. Um, so yeah, I mean, I would love to come to Florida and um, go to Disneyland, basically. But uh, and wrestle games. Yeah, well, that, um, well, I haven't moved that one out yet. Maybe I'm not sure. That, I'm not sure there's many gates in Scotland, but that would be scary that would be completely scary i think too though you you're highlighting the per per um i forget the name the name of the artist that was a part of the fringe that was on tv now but one that i think the people who are listening to would be interested in is that you were telling me about the guy who plays nate on ted lasso did a great like magic thing or who's uh. Yeah, um, Nick Mohammed. Uh, so I've never seen Ted Lasso. Um, so to me, uh, Nick Mohammed is just Mr. Swallow. Um, so Mr. Swallow is uh, one of his um, characters that he performs as, as a magician. And um, it's definitely worth, you should definitely see Nick Mohammed live on stage. So caveat, the Fringe Society, we don't recommend shows. We love all artists the same, but I am now going to talk about Nick Mohammed. Uh, Mr. Swallow is, um, when I saw it, the Fringe I can't even remember when, maybe 17, 16. Uh, the premise of the show is he's talking to you about Houdini's last trick. Um, and he's a terrible musician, in inverted commas, but he's actually brilliant. And he, he pulls the illusions off and he takes you through the story. And he is, for those of you that are Ted Lasso fans, you'll understand the charm and the appeal of, of Nick Mohammed. And he's somewhere between a sort of Houdini-style magician, a Darren Brown-style magician. And I really like the idea that there'll be loads of people that don't know about that part of his career because he's always he's just the the guy from Ted Lasso which is always the way with TV people where you're like oh I saw that guy on stage in the thing that oh how did that work um but yeah Mr Swallow is a uh, a very 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 delightful character and it's it's the thing people ask you what your favorite things to see at the fringe are and for me I've got a real I've got a real affection for people that just want to tell you a good story and they tend toward the silly they tend to be things where it's just an hour in a space. Somebody's telling me a very good story. I'm fully involved. And that used to just be, you know, it used to just be theatre. But now people are messing around with those genres. Like, you know, a few years ago, an incredible dance key piece called uh, by an Argentinian company, I think, called Umpoyo Rojo. Um, terrible pronunciation. And it was a sort of, you know like locker room boy type stuff and and um all our it was brilliant and it was really good fun all i remember is at one point the other one one of them using the other one's mouth as like a beatbox and it was just so absurd and it was so ridiculous and like when i leave a fringe show having laughed hard or or actually conversely having cried hard it, those are the stuff i seek out i seek out that hour of like nothing else matters there's just the story here and uh, Mr. Swallow is definitely one of those. I was like, this is fun. And usually the measure of a good fringe show is if, if when they're finished, I'm like, oh, do it again. Like if they just reset and went again, I'd be like, OK, let's do that then. 
I don't need to go anywhere else. Yeah. Yeah. I'll just stay here. They're like, yeah. get out, get out. We've got another show in 10 minutes. It's like, no. Yeah. I, 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 I wanted to bring that up too, because of the way you talked about the Mr. Swallow show in, because I think um, it goes back to the value thing and everything we were talking about throughout is that there's real value in what everybody's doing. It's sometimes hard to remember it or hard to imagine it, but you always have to realize that like when you're doing the, it's not like you're just putting these things on. You're tra- you're changing people's lives. You're transforming their, you know, they're giving them an experience. You're giving them something they didn't. You're making their lives better. And always keep that in mind. At least that's you know my take when I go out and give these talks to people. It's like don't apologize for it. Be proud of what you're doing. Yeah, and, and I'd like to say that, you know, I that's because I think, you know, I do believe that arts has value and all of those other things, but there's a selfish motivation in it too. You know, I I do what I do because I love what comes out the other end of it. So I was a terrible actress. I, I tried at university. I very quickly realised I wasn't very good at it, but I realised I was good at the other stuff. And I think the the selfish part of me is I, I love the end result. And I think... I could do what I do with this skill set in any one of a number of sectors and probably get paid a lot more money and have a much easier life of it. But when I get to sit in, you know, on a normal in an in a normal year, I'm, I'm seeing 50, 60 shows over the course of a month and I'm talking to artists all the time and I'm seeing what I want to see. I'm not seeing what I have to see most of the time. And and, and there's no sort of prescription. It, it's my fringe, too, as much as, as anybody else's. And I make my own program and I drag people to see shows and people drag me to see shows and and. I love it. And and I think for me, that's the value principle is that I genuinely care about what happens on the, on the stage. I genuinely care that artists have the space to make work and and the privilege of um, the privilege of being able to put in place a structure that means that that's accessible to anybody that wants to do it. That's that's quite that is quite unique to the fringe and will be tricky when it comes to maybe thinking about moving on and finding another job. It's like where else in the world can literally anybody, even if you're awful, can come and have a go. And because actually some 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 of the fringe experience is going. Turns out I shouldn't give up my job as an insurance salesman and, and become a stand up comedian because I'm terrible. But very few places give you the space to take that chance. And And that I mean, that's the stuff that that makes all of the last two years worth of of bullshit really really worth it because like I genuinely love sitting in a teeny tiny dark space being told a story and, and being let into somebody else's imagination for for an hour just yeah. as it's such a treat and and when you have those moments with with a room full of people they can be whether they're because everybody's laughing or because everybody's you know just devastated by the story they're being told that just it doesn't get much more human than that yeah. getting all poetic oh. now Oh, you did. You totally like we went from jokes to like tears. Jeez Louise. Now, oh. <laughs> where can people find you on the Internet, Lindy? Um, that's a sinister question. Oh, I, yes. I, uh, I want to review blog for bins. No. Um, so you can find me on uh, your social media places. I don't do TikTok because I just I'm too old. Instagram feeds me TikTok. That will do. Um, on a generally Lindsay J. Jackson. Um, if you can figure out how to spell my name, then you can find me uh, and you can find the fringe at Ed Fringe. But actually, my um, I'd much rather that you go out and find um, a social media account of, uh, of an artist that you like and support because I'm really all I tweet about is you know boring work I don't really do Instagram very much I'm more of a just I'm just there for the comics so I'd much rather that you find artists that you're interested in and follow them instead um, and burn the billionaires that's definitely <laughs> Lindsay Jackson 
Do you know what? I stand, I stand by that. I think, yeah, I think why not? Unless, of course, we are in hard fundraising mode. So unless any of those billionaires want to give us some money, you see, we're all we're all just made up of contradictions. But I do. I stand by that. Um, yeah, but yeah, please don't send them, please don't send them after me. I'm 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 only one woman. There's a um, a really good Twitter account that's called uh, Every Billionaire is a Policy Failure. So Yes. <laughs> Yeah. Amen to that. I'm gonna gonna go follow. See, this is what I mean. I'm I'm not a particularly interesting person on, on the old social medias, but yeah, you can you can find me, and um, I will be in and around the Intix space, although not there in person. And I'll be there at the next one. Where is the actually? Where is the next one? Depends. That's that's a. I, I don't know right off the top of my head. Ugh. They all they, see. I was gonna say, see, they only they don't tell us anything important. They just go, Lindsay and Dave, can we use you to sell tickets to our our thing? Because there was like this was our joke when we were like on the flyer. Yeah, <laughs> it's right like why is my other. head why is my head so big? Yeah, why is my, my and my head is big in general. So, <laughs> are you are you coming to Birmingham for TPC? Uh we will see. We will see. I have had It'll to cancel nice. several trips to england in the last two years so um including one that would be starting in about two weeks um but you know yeah you know how it goes yeah, yeah so it is all right well look thank you for doing this and uh and i'll talk to you soon you will bye what did you think of my conversation with Lindsay jackson let me know by sending me an email, it's my name, David, DaveWakeman.com. You can find my website, DaveWakeman.com. You'll find all the stuff I'm going to be up to this year. Uh, you can hit me up on the Twitter. I'm at Dave underscore Wakeman. <clears throat> I was able to get one of those uh, famous Dave Wakeman hash, or, uh, Twitter handles, so that's great. Uh, send me an email at DaveDaveWakeman.com. Let me know if or what you would like to learn or know or find out if we did a podference. Uh, I'm planning it for April 25th through 29th, and we're going to have some tracks, and we're going to drop a whole bunch of knowledge on you, uh, and it looks like something fun because I've seen it done for small businesses and technology, and it seems to be a lot of fun, and Hannah Graneman, who will be coming up, I think, maybe next week, it was one of her ideas, so I'm going to lovingly steal that from her, uh, but let me know, daviddavewakeman.com. Get the Talking Tickets newsletter, talkingtickets.substack.com, or you go to the Dave Wakeman website, and there's a pop-up, uh, five stories each week, some analysis, some action items, all kinds of great stuff. Um, like I said, top got the COVID. It's kind of sticking with me. It's lingering. Be careful. The mild is not as much fun as they make it sound like. Um, a lot of exciting stuff to come now that I am hopefully on the mend. Um you know, make sure you know share this thing with people if you think they need to hear it or would learn something from it. And to save my voice a little bit more, I will talk to you soon. Take it easy, and thanks for listening.